The imagery of God as a potter permeates the scripture. We find it here in Jeremiah. It's in the book of Isaiah. We also find it in the New Testament in the book of Romans. And we'll look at that passage in a little while. And that image of God shaping our lives is comforting, convicting, and challenging all at the same time. There's a degree to which we want to know, God, are you in control? Especially when things happen in our world or in our lives where it seems like there is very little control. Just this last week with the terrible mass shooting that happened at um, a church in Texas where during their service someone came in and, and killed 26 people and shot 20 others. Quickly after that, one of the, the first um, tweets that went out was from a, a celebrity saying, okay, Christians, where is your God? How would God allow such a thing to happen? It's not an uncommon question. In fact, when we look in the scriptures, we find that very question listed numerous times in the book of Job and especially in the Psalms. Psalm 42 repeatedly says that he's been challenged with this question of the people around him saying, where is your God? And the answer that comes back is a challenge to trust in God even when the circumstances do not make sense to us. So this question about God's control is an incredibly important question. It's one that we need to wrestle with. And what I hope to do today is look at some of what the scripture tells us about God's control or the word that we would use, a more theological term, would be God's sovereignty we want to look at what it says there, and we also want to look at human responsibility and try to see how they fit together. Now, this is not going to be necessarily a, a deep theological study because these issues have been debated and examined over the centuries by people far more knowledgeable and capable than I am. But I'm going to do my best to try to see at least how I believe the Scripture brings these two things together. God's control and our responsibility. So let's begin by looking at the power of God's sovereignty. Now the, now the word sovereignty itself means that God has, first of all, absolute freedom. God can do anything that he wants to do with a bit of a caveat, a little reservation about that, and I'll explain that in a moment. He is not constrained or limited in any way. But that's not to say that God can do anything. And the reason why I put that disclaimer in there is because God is free to do absolutely anything that conforms to who he is, to his character, to his nature. That's why sometimes maybe you've heard the uh, skeptic question, maybe somebody has asked you this question where they would say, um, can God create something so big he cannot lift it? It's a dumb question, okay? Let me just say, but let's take it, take it for a moment. 
So what they're trying to do is they're trying to find a riddle that can put God in a box that somehow says, well, really, God is limited in some way. They're speculating that, that God doesn't have power, and he's not able to do anything that he desires. What we read in the scripture is that he has created the planets, the stars, the galaxies, the universe are things that he has created, he has spoke into existence. And the supposed question or the, the puzzle of this question is that if God can't create something so big that he, <laughs> that he can't lift it, then he's limited in what he can create. But we need to understand that God is spirit and the physical laws of gravity are not applicable to his nature. That's why it doesn't really fit. But more importantly, there are limits to the freedom of what God will do. But those limits are not based upon his capability. They are based upon his character. For instance, God will not and cannot lie because he is truth. To be truth means that there is no way God can tell a lie. So that is something he can't do because it doesn't conform to his character, to his nature. He will not act in a way that is contradictory to who he is. In the same way, when God makes a promise, he cannot break it because it would go against who he is. And that is important for us to know because the more we understand about the character and nature of God, the more we can put our trust in him. You see, the whole imagery of, that we saw in the little video while the scripture was being read, the imagery of the clay being there on the wheel of the potter and him shaping that is that it's God's invitation to you and me to put our lives fully in his hands and say, Lord, shape me and make me into who you want me to be. Because I trust you. But at the same time, we must recognize that even if we choose to reject God, it does not limit his power and control over us. He will still accomplish his will. His lordship over creation means that everything is under his sovereignty. But God is not just sovereign. For us to understand who he is, we must look at the whole of his character, of his nature. He is also holy. He is righteous. He is love. He is merciful. He is just. But oftentimes what happens is, is we picture in our own hearts, in our own minds, an image of God made after our own desires, our own expectations that, do not, that does not fit with what he's revealed about himself in scripture. We've made a false image of God and then when we see circumstances occur that do not line up with our expectations, we begin to wrestle with understanding who God is, whether he is real, whether he is in control. We create an illusion of God that does not match the reality of what he has said about himself so let's see what he says about himself. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. The Lord says this, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. In other words, 
let this sink in as deep as possible into the very midst of your being, that the Lord is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. There is none other. He's saying he's God and he alone is. Deuteronomy goes on in 30, chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God makes some pretty bold statements about who he is. And this is why we find both comfort and challenge in the truth of God being in control. Because if God is in control, that means that I'm not and I have to surrender control to him. That challenges me. On the other hand, when I look at the reality of my life and I discover how out of control I am to begin with, I want to put my comfort in the fact that there is a God who is in control, who loves me and has demonstrated his love towards me through his son, Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. God is the only one in control, the only sovereign Lord. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, and it says it in many, many places. Colossians would be one of the great places in Hebrews chapter 1, but it tells us that he is before all things. He was before there was mountains. He was before there was the earth. He was before there was the heavens. He exists outside of time. He created all things, both in heaven and on earth. That which is visible and that which is invisible, he created. He upholds all things. Everything is held together by the word of his power. He is above all things, all people, all nations, all angels, all powers. The Bible tells us that he knows all things. There is nothing hidden from his sight about you, about me, about any circumstance in anyone's life in all the universe. There is nothing that is outside of God's understanding and knowledge. He can do all things. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is impossible for him. He also accomplishes his perfect will, all things. His complete will will be done, will be accomplished. And none of it will be missed. God is in control. But we live in a world that is marked and marred by sin. It has been scarred both relationally and physically by the sin of humanity, by the rebellion of Satan and the fallen angels, and therefore the perfection which God created has been marred. And God has given humanity and the spiritual forces limited autonomy. They have a freedom to act within his restraint and within his limits. And that can be difficult for us to understand at times, However, we must recognize that if God did not allow for a limited amount of freedom in which the possibility of evil and suffering can result, there would not be room for you and for me because we are all sinners in need of God's grace. But that's also why we need to be careful about pronouncing judgment, about saying this happened because God was bringing judgment. 
Far too often I hear um, people in the media, preachers in particular in the media, when some event happens, they will say that was God's judgment. It may be God's judgment, it may not be God's judgment, but that's up to God. Jesus talks about this very point specifically in the Gospel of Luke. I want to invite you to turn there to Luke chapter 13. And let's look at verses 1 through 5 for just a moment. He says this, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other people of Galilee? Because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. So it's important for us to not look at events that happen in the world and to make a statement saying this is why it occurred. It's beyond our understanding. And it comes in a point where we have to trust God because what God has told us in his word is that in his control, in his sovereignty, ultimately everything will work out in such a way that it will eventually bring glory to him and reveal that he alone is God. God has a purpose even in tragedy that people will turn and come to know him. Sometimes that's hard for us to get our minds and our hearts around. Well, what is the purpose of God's sovereignty in our lives? Let's look at a familiar passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 9, and it picks up the same theme that we saw in Jeremiah. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's a good question, isn't it? How many times have you looked at your own life and maybe not out loud, but in your heart said, God, why did you make me this way? When we ask that question, we're forgetting that he is God. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's he's saying, in other words, if it's his purpose to allow evil to occur, evil people, evil acts that will eventually point to his glory Can we really argue with that? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He's saying, ultimately, what you need to understand is even in the midst of tragedy, God is working in such a way to draw people to faith in Christ to bring people to a relationship with him. And so many times as I have personally um, been in the midst of, of tragedies large and small, 
I've seen that there are things that are absolutely um, uncomprehendable to my mind. And at the same time, I have seen people through those very tragedies come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're able to trace the events that occurred last Sunday in a small church in Texas and look at it in the future and see what occurred out of it, there will be people who came to faith in that community, in that state, and in other places because somehow God used that to get their attention. I don't know. I don't know how it works out but I've seen that evidence over and over again. God, in choosing to use the image of a potter, chose it on purpose. It's not just a random illustration like some of my props. God God knows, unlike me, God knows what he's doing. He chose the image of a potter because God formed Adam and Eve out of the clay of the ground. We are all Simple vessels of clay were made from dust, and to dust our physical bodies will return. But in God's design for us, he has chosen to take the brokenness of our lives and to bring life into it and to remake us and to restore us into something that is beautiful, that reflects the greatness of what he had in mind to begin with. So God has every right to do with us as he wants. But if we're going to understand that, we need to ultimately understand God's heart. So I want you to look at another picture, another verse in the scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Because sometimes when we see these tragedy, tragic events in our world, And it causes us, even as followers of Jesus Christ, to question, God, how could you allow that? How could you allow this struggle? We ask questions like the psalmist does in Psalm 42 and like is addressed here in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God in his grace allows the hard, difficult events that occur in our lives personally and in our world for the purpose of seeing people turn away from their sin and selfishness and pride and come to faith in Jesus. God extends his grace, but he does not force it upon us. God desires all to come to repentance, but he is also knowing that many will not. Many will refuse, but in his patience, he extends grace. So what about human responsibility? If God is in control, how does free will or human responsibility fit into this? Because the scriptures talk about this as well. In fact, the the verses that we began with in the reading in Jeremiah 18, let's look at two of those verses again, verses 11 through 12, where it says this, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you, return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. 
He's giving an invitation in the midst of saying, I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm giving you an opportunity to turn around. I will relent if you will turn. But then he goes on to say what is happening in the people's hearts is they will say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and everyone act according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. That's the story of humanity is that we're in rebellion against God and every time God brings about events that are orchestrated in your life and in my life to get our attention, we have a choice. Will I turn to God or will I turn away from him? And if we turn away from him, he will harden our heart. Now, that can be a a difficult uh, thing for us to understand. But we're going to look at that in just a moment. I hope hope to illustrate it in a way that will make sense. We'll, We'll see. But one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating about God's word is that virtually every time in the scripture a passage talks about God's control, it also talks about human responsibility and the opportunity for us to respond to the Lord. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13 is a great example because it comes just just a few verses, a few sentences after the fact where it talked about God saying, I'm in control and I as the potter have the right over the clay. And then he goes on just a few verses later and says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he goes on to say, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he says, I'm in control, but you are responsible. And these two truths are not opposing. They fit together. We have a responsibility to respond to the Lord. And somehow, God's will and human responsibility fit together. Let me give you a simple example, um, a simple question. Are you... Your existence today, is it the result of God's sovereign will or is it the result of human freedom? Why do you exist? Okay, it's God's will. God created you, right? But somewhere along the line, I think for most of us, our parents had something to do with that. Somehow they were involved in most cases, I'm assuming willingly, in participating in an act that brought about your conception and mine. We are the product of both. We are created in God's image. He designed us before the creation of the world, and yet in the freedom of human liberty, mom and dad, I know this is really hard, especially for teenagers, to think about that whole idea, so just go ahead and erase it from your minds, but you came about by both human freedom, and God's sovereign will. They fit together. So what about then, in the midst of that, if God is in control, sometimes that makes us nervous because we begin to think, well, if God is in control, then I don't have freedom. And what about the passages that that say God hardens someone's heart? Do, Do any of you have a little trouble with that? Because it, it sounds on the surface like God made them do something, doesn't it? 
Well, let me explain to you, I'm going to try to illustrate to you what hardening of the heart in the scripture looks like, because the scripture actually uses that phrase both in saying God hardened their heart and that they hardened their heart. And specifically, the illustration happens to be about Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. But the best way I know to illustrate that is um, to, to do a taste test here, because I have some strawberries, and earlier... Leslie was looking at the strawberries that were sitting there, and he was looking longingly at them. So, Leslie, I need you to come up here, and I need you to pick a strawberry and take a bite out of it, and then describe to us what that's like. Or did you want one of these? Yeah, you can have one of those two, but go with that one first. Here, and you got to take a bite and then describe the strawberry. What's it like? Tasty and cold. Is it, is it juicy? It's good. Okay, now taste the other strawberry. What do, you, what, do you think of, what do you think of that one? Tastes sour? Wow, it's sour? It, it doesn't taste the same as the, as the other one. Okay, thank you very much. Very simple illustration. Here's, here's the point. Both of these have exactly the same components. They're both strawberries, right? What's different is this group of strawberries, the moisture has been taken out of it. The same thing happens in the human heart. You see, the moisture that's in there isn't the strawberry. It's simply, it's water. It's, it's something else that's in there. When we begin to turn our heart away from God, he allows his grace to evaporate out of our life, and we become more concentrated. The same strawberry that tasted sweet when it was filled with moisture tastes sour when that moisture is gone. And instead of being juicy and fresh, it becomes shriveled and hard. That's exactly what happens in the human heart. When you and I turn away from God, when, what he does is he says, if you don't want me, then I will not pour my grace out into your heart. And that grace will not soften your heart anymore. And as you continue to turn away farther and farther from me, your heart will get harder and harder and harder because it will become more of what it is without me. Does that make sense? Do you see how that fits? That's exactly what it says, in, or what it's talking about in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, when it says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This is what the scripture says that God told Moses when he was going to perform those miraculous signs of the ten plagues there before um, Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And you know what? What happened when, when Moses went there and he told that to Pharaoh, you know, the people had been praying for years for a deliverer. And God sends them one and Moses shows up and begins to show God's signs. And what happens? Things get more difficult for Israel, not easier. Oftentimes, that's what happens in our own life. It seems like, Lord, I've come to you. We're listening to you. You're answering my prayer. And things have just gotten harder. Well, the reason that it did is because God had a greater purpose. 
He not only wanted Israel to be set free, he wanted them to be blessed abundantly and to be sent out with all of the resources to be able to build the tabernacle and to sustain them and take care of them and for them to be able to begin a new life. And in the process, not only did Pharaoh have to get to the point where he eventually relented and said, go, but all of the people of Egypt had to come to the point where they said, yes, we not only want you to go, we're going to give you our jewelry, our clothes, our livestock. We're going to give you anything that we can give to you because we don't want you here anymore. God had a greater blessing in store for them. But if they would have looked at it just at that moment in time, it would not have made sense. And it caused them to wrestle with it. So how do we reconcile this idea of God being in control and human sovereignty? Because the scripture talks um, greatly about both these. Let me just highlight a couple of things. Let me go to a very familiar passage that talks about God's control, God's sovereignty. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Looking at it through this lens, we see God has a plan, he is in control, and he apparently is picking, he's choosing. And oftentimes we have a tough time, depending on where you are theologically, and we have a very diverse congregation about where we are in some different things, Um, we have a tough time when we hear this word, um, predestination. Well, I'm not going to try to, I'm not even going to begin to try to go into all the theological ramifications of that, I simply want to make three observations about this. First off, what the predestination is. It's predestined to become like Jesus Christ, right? Make sense? It's, that is what we were created for in the first place. Secondly, predestination requires a call. God is calling people to himself. And also we see in the midst of this, that predestination involves, at least in some way, foreknowledge. There is knowledge outside of time. Now, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I don't understand all that. And, and, and that's why I don't try to preach theologically on this very much, because it's way over my head. All right? So that's one thing, though. God is in control. He's working. He's accomplishing his will. Scripture just told us that. I believe it. I may not understand it, but I believe it with all my heart. But in the same way, we see scriptures that talk about humans' free will. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 20 through 21 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of his father, nor the father suffer for the sin of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. So he says we're responsible for our own actions. God has a plan, he is working it, humans have responsibility. Each person in the midst of that free will Each person is responsible for their own actions. That's what it's telling us. 
Also, God desires for us to freely turn from our sin to him. That's his heart. And God goes on to say multiple times in Scripture that anyone who does call on him will be saved. We see this in Romans chapter 9, and verses, um, excuse me, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 13. We see it in Acts 2.21. We see it in Mark 16.16. 16. And we see it maybe most clearly in the book of Joel. Because I look at this passage in, in Joel, when I'm wrestling with this puzzle of understanding how God's control and human responsibility fit together, I come to a verse in Joel chapter 2 that says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. God calls, we call upon the name of the Lord. They fit together in some way. Again, it's To me, it's really not um, a struggle anymore because God says it, I believe it, and that makes it good enough for me. But it has been a challenge. And so what I'm going to do just for a couple minutes here, rather than try to explain this with theological points that we go through um, um, different points of view on, on God's sovereignty, I want to give you an illustration, and I want to teach this to you the way I teach my children. Um, I'm a really simple guy, but I recognize that my first responsibility was to pastor and shepherd my children. And so in order to explain to them um, challenging biblical truths, God has to work in a simple way in me. And so he gave me a, a, an illustration that I've used with my children that I think um, they've, they've come to understand. My, our children are now 31, 29, 27, and 25, and they're all married, so they're out on their own, but they still use these things. In fact, one evidence that I know that um, it sunk in and, and stuck is my son Micah gave me this from Nepal, partly because we have a great love for Nepal. We both had, have um, done mission work there. Also, we have a great love for Gorkas, which is a, a Nepalese, Nepalese um, knife. Um, but also because of a fish, because this is the illustration I used to help him try to understand God's sovereignty and our free will. And, and here's, here's how it goes. So if you'll put up the first, there's a picture uh, of a river, okay? Isn't that beautiful? It's a lovely picture of a river. And what it is, is time is like a river. Um, we live within its banks, but God himself is outside of time. If you think about a river, it flows and it's constantly changing. That's why, you know, we use, even in, in time, we use the words, the current time is um, 1146, which means I have three minutes before we have to get to Lord's Supper. So we'll see how well I do on that. The current time, it's constantly flowing. And so we're like, in a sense, like a fish. You see my beautiful fish there underneath present, um, if you can see him there. We exist within the current of time. We remember what happened in the past, we experience what is happening right now in the present, and we anticipate what may happen in the future. But we have little understanding of life outside of time or outside of the stream. A fish can't understand what's happening in the mountains. It's beyond their experience, right? Now, 
you're looking at that picture and you see the words past, present, and future all at the same time, right? That's like God. He sees time, past, present, and future all at once. But just like a man would be able to walk into that stream and wade across it, God is able to enter into time, which is what Jesus Christ did. At the right time, Jesus Christ stepped into human existence. He um, was... His, uh, a virgin birth occurred in Bethlehem. He took on human form. He was born as a man. He lived a life that was perfect, that was sinless, and he died a death for us. At just the right time, the eternal God entered into time. But God already sees all of time at once because he is not restricted to time. Does that make sense? Just as you can see the whole picture, but if you're the fish, all you see is is what's happened in the past, what you're experiencing in the present, and what you anticipate may happen in the future, okay? Let's go to the, the next, next slide. Okay, let's take our fish, and this is how I tried to explain it to, to my children about God interacting, God sovereignly working in a way that also takes into account the freedom of his creatures, the freedom that he has given to them. Now, here's what happens. God, in my little scenario, God chooses to increase the speed of the wind um, four kilometers faster than it had been. He brings in a breeze. And as a result, it creates a little bit of a, a ripple back there where the guy is. There's a man standing who's wading across the river, okay? And in the pocket of the man is a coin. Looks just like this, because I'm sure it was a check crown back then. Um, and so... he. Because of God directly interacting and, and increasing the, the wind that caused a little wave on that stream, it made this coin fall out of his pocket. He didn't even know it. He's waving across the stream, goes on his way, didn't even know it was gone. But God, knowing everything about every particle in the universe and knowing the character and nature of every one of his creatures, also knows something about fish. What do fish like? They like shiny things, right? Every fish likes shiny things. Now, I'm convinced that fish do not have very good taste buds because when I've gone fishing and looked at some of the things that they eat, I've gone, I don't know, I don't know why they take, put that in their mouth. But if it's shiny, it looks like a fish to them and it goes in their mouth. So what happens is, in my little scenario, is the fish swims upstream and there's this shiny thing there in the stream and he puts it in his mouth and he goes on his way and he swims out and he comes out into a lake. And here's what happens. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said to him, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, a coin. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. In the scripture, it tells us that Jesus knew exactly where a coin was in the mouth of a fish 
in the Sea of Galilee. He knows everything. Now, I don't know how the coin got in his mouth. Maybe it was a totally different scenario than what I painted. But somehow, that coin got in the mouth of the fish. And Peter goes, casts out his line, catches the fish, the first fish he catches, and there's a coin in its mouth, and he goes and pays the tax. Because Jesus is in control of everything. He knows where every particle in the universe is. If we take that scenario... Did God do anything in the midst of that that overrode the free will of the fish? Or did he just allow the fish to do what fish do and used it for his purpose? See, God's sovereignty is so big, he can also allow us to have human freedom. It does not limit him in any way. Because he knows everything about you, everything about me. And he sees all of time at once. And somehow in the greatness of God, that all fits together in beautiful ways. My purpose in this is really this. I want you to think about the amazing God that we have. Who is able to accomplish his purpose. Who is able to love us to encourage us, to strengthen us and invites us into his work, into his story and simply says this, would you place yourself in my hands? Would you trust me with all that you are? Because my plans are good. In fact, I've proven them to you because the same hands that took clay and formed Adam and Eve those same hands took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Those same hands who are in control of this world and of circumstances and of our lives, those same hands, those same arms were stretched out upon a cross as an offering, as a sacrifice for us. And the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to give forgiveness to you and I. And every time we come to the table and we partake and have the bread that represents Jesus' body and we drink the cup that represents Jesus' blood, we remember what God has done for us, how he has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, he died for us. He entered into time to rescue us so that you and I could have life in him. We're going to come in just a moment to the table and we're going to remember what Jesus has done. The scripture tells us on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and blessed it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given to you. He took the cup and he blessed it as well and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it all of you for this is the new covenant. This is the cup of my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. We remember what he has done and in doing as we partake of the bread and of the cup, let me urge you to today afresh 
Place your life back into those same hands that were stretched out on a cross and say, Lord Jesus, my life is yours. Mold my circumstances, my relationships, my dreams, my future, everything that I am. Have your way because you've proven that you are not only in control, but you are incredibly good. Generally, Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the greatness of who you are. Well, we ask your blessing upon this bread. As we partake of it, let us remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. As we partake of this cup, we ask that you would bless it. Will we remember that our sin required a payment and that payment had to be covered with your shed blood, a perfect, holy sacrifice that you had planned out from the beginning in order to rescue us. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Jesus, thank you for what you have done, for who you are. And Lord, today, help us to place ourselves back in your control, in your hands, and say, Lord, have your way with our life. In Jesus' name.